Before we start this episode, quick spoiler alert, we're going to be discussing all things from these movies, so if you haven't seen them, go watch them and come back, or if you don't care, I'm not your dad, do what you want. What is the best movie of 2021 so far? Is it Promising Young Woman, Nomadland, or Judas and the Black Messiah? It's time to find out on The Screen Test. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test with me, your favourite filmmaker boy, Jack Howard. And I'm joined, as always, by the chief film critic at The Independent, Clarice Lockery. Hello. One third of the cyber nerds, Joa Kimwin. What's good? And this week, our guest is podcaster and film writer, Anna Bogutskier. Hello. So we're about halfway through the year, which is terrifying. And there's been some great movies that have been released so far, some of which are available to watch on Prime Video right now, including the Oscar-winning Sound of Metal, Time Loop comedy Palm Springs, and Borat 2, which was better than anyone expected it to be. So I thought it was time to decide which film is the best of the year so far. And Anna, we'll start with you since you're the guest. Mine is going to be Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. Okay, Joe, what are you bringing to the table? Mine is Shaka King's biopic about William O'Neill, Judas and the Black Messiah. And Clarice? Like, I, just, I just went for the boring choice and the obvious one, but I picked this year's Best Picture winner, Nomadland. But so, it is the best picture. It so is. boring as a choice that even the Oscars didn't put it last because everyone knew it was going to happen. They were like, let's just get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. But it's a great it's- film. Not, I don't want to just say, it, I don't think it's a boring choice at all, actually, because I think it is undeniably incredible. Sometimes the best picture really is the best picture. Okay. Well, what does everybody feel about each other's picks? Are we all generally fans of all the movies? What are we feeling? I really enjoyed Promising Young Woman, mm-hmm. and I really thought that Nomadland was boring. Okay, okay. It's going to be difficult because I think all three of our picks are genuinely excellent, amazing Mm. films. Well, I have to be honest. I am not a fan of Promising Young Woman. But conflict this early on? I know that, Anna, you've got an entire podcast dedicated to it and you clearly have, have... really fallen in love with this movie and I'm excited to hear about your perspective on it because my I think my feelings purely are more like from a technical filmmaking point of view it feels like this is very much someone's first movie and I think some of the technical way that the film is made didn't help me invest in what was going on it was sort of some of the way it was shot and blocks like some more like filmmaking type of things that were distracting me from the core of the story to be honest so I'm excited about your perspective on it. It's interesting to hear, but all I'm hearing is that you don't like pink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into the first round, which is cast. And we'll start with Anna and the cast of Promising Young Woman. Um, what do you think about um, Carrie Mulligan? Okay, so it, I actually want to say that it's genius on two levels. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's Carrie Mulligan, obviously an incredible performer, very established already. Um, we've never really seen her in this kind of violent role in this very genre world. She's much more known as a dramatic actress, as a period piece actress. She's also very deliberately avoided being typecast, but no one was expecting her to go this intense and this angry but actually i want to talk about the genius of metacasting in promising young woman which is actually not carrie 
who, you know, we, I could go on about how amazing and uh, her performance is, but it's actually the guys that I think work so well in Promising a Woman. And there's very deliberate casting of romantic and comedic actors into these incredibly damaging, um, really toxic, really m kind of quietly menacing roles of, you know, the nice guy. And they're never the nice guy. They're disgusting. It feels like who McLovin grew up to be. Yes. And, you know, you've got the fake Schmidt, like we like I call we call him like that on the on my promising young podcast where you can't you can't take away the the lovable, geeky, romantic leads roles that we associate, we you know, with um, Chris Herman's Platts, with both. Burnham with Adam Brody and then seeing them in these really really menacing roles is so jarring and that's kind of one of the powerful things about the film that you see these these characters that are engaging with Cassie with Carrie Mulligan's character and you don't expect them to be to behave in that way to be menacing to be potentially rapists to be potentially abusers and they are and they behave in this really terrible ways and they're called out for it by her character and it really calls us out as well as an audience because we're so used to seeing them in these really fluffy roles and all the narratives that unfold in the film really fit within the structure of romantic comedies, of comedies in general. And, you know, even the character of like Seth Cohen by Adam Brody, it, it's essentially a parody of a type of nice film boy that he helped create through his character of Seth in the OC. And seeing them as these menacing figures kind of hiding in plain sight becomes so effective because it's playing with our own audience and industry expectations of who these actors are supposed to play so much more than you know our expectations of who Carrie Mulligan is, is allowed to play. I wanted to just build on that as well to say with Bo Burnham's casting I think it's it was absolutely so devastating to me because he I have loved his work since he was doing comedy like I have always looked up to him as like one of the nice guys <laughs> and so I you feel I, personally betrayed by him well yeah and it really ties into this idea that you know you just you don't want it to be true you desperately don't want it to be true and the crushing part of promising young woman is having to realize that like how men present themselves is not always who they are and that's the really really heartbreaking part of that film and I just think I think his casting in particular is just like <sighs> to go back to Carrie Mulligan her like physical performance in this film is both so contained and so on the edge at all times you can literally feel through the screen that her character could snap at any moment mm -hmm. and there's one moment in particular where she snaps towards the end of the film and she yells there's w only one time where she yells throughout the whole movie she's very aggressive very you know damning very scathing in her dialogue and how she talks to people she's very you know prickly at all times but at the end there's one moment where she yells and that's where she snaps and it really it's heartbreaking and it's also really scary to see because you can tell through that the build-up of the whole film is she's so tightly wound and seeing that on screen and portraying that on screen and still being so intensely watchable and so intensely empathetic towards a character that's basically on the brink of a breakdown from just sheer rage and you know arrested development the entire film I think it's quite a feat for especially for actresses for female performers to portray a character who's very very clearly not handled trauma 
in a positive or productive or acceptable way to watch that and to both be entertained and moved and deeply angered by that by that performance and by that film i think is a staggering achievement i totally agree with everything you're saying and incredibly well argued i want to just bring in a bit of criticism that i had which was the casting of laverne cox which I thought was a bit of a waste and felt a little bit like a non-character. And I thought that was a little bit disappointing. How do you feel about that? I kind of have to agree. I think Laverne Cox is such an amazing, charismatic performer. I wish they would have given her a bit more to do, a bit more of a character. But I could actually argue the same for, (laughs) I know I'm I'm arguing against my own pick, but also um, Jennifer Coolidge Mm. and Clancy Brown, who play Cassie's parents in the film. There could also be always a little bit more from the supporting characters but i think the whole point i suppose is it isn't there it's about film. her it's about her everyone yeah. else is very much a a supporting a supporting character in her story okay let's move on to judas and the black messiah and we have an academy award winner and bafta award-winning performance in this yeah um daniel kalua comes out and he delivers i would say like a really inspiring performance um i really like what he does in this movie because he is so he knows what he wants and he's he's he delivers frank uh frank hampton's vision and and so well that like he's just a likable character like you just believe in him he he spends the movie uniting people that shouldn't be united um with where He's talking to where he brings in the Hispanic um, gang locals and then even some some white southerners together. Like he's he's uniting people who are all being like pushed down by the system and and he just delivers it in such a great way. And I really like just appreciate that. And then that goes against um, Lakeith Stanfield, who's playing a conflicted character who's being used by the government. Um, I think it's. I think what Daniel Kaluuya does is really great, but I feel like it's it's made even better by uh, Lakeith's performance where no matter what he does, while he's making these decisions and while you're looking at him and, and he's talking to you, you know he's lying. But when you look into his eyes, you can see there's conflict and that like he actually does like Frank Hampton and like like there's so many emotions in there it feels like he doesn't really know what he's getting himself into yeah and I think that's one of the things to me that's that's crazy but then when you look at the real life situation of what happened and how young they are like Frank Hampton was only 21 when he when he passed away and and um um, William O'Neill was 19 it's like he's doing something that is atrocious mm-hmm. really but at the same time he's a 19 year old kid that is in over his head and now is pretty much being blackmailed into making wrong decisions and I feel like they really make you feel for him and I feel like it was so conflicting for me because like I hate the character but then at the same time there's a part of me that's like almost understanding that he feels that he's got nothing, no other way out of this whole scenario. He um, clearly admires like the, the the finer things in life and wants to be able to give himself a better chance in the world. See, and I think with that, it's not necessarily him trying to get, um, want the finer things, but he understands that 
if he's going to go down his path and betray his people, he then needs to elevate to a scenario where he's not actually around them. Mm. And that's why presenting him with financial gain, making him feel like, oh, you could be on our side and they, they're not living the same as Frank Hampton and them. That's that's what, how I translate the, okay, if I do this, you have to give me even more money. Like mm-hmm. he always wants more money because he knows the, or he believes the more money he will get, the further removed he can be from the situation after it all blows up, which obviously is wrong because you can't run away from yourself. And that's what something that he ends up not being able to live with. Um, I also think Dominic uh, Fishback, uh, Dominique Fishback was was amazing. I feel like she's actually like the intimate heart and soul of the movie where it's like Frank Hampton is on a mission to unite the world and unite all of these people. And, and that is such a, a grand mission and gesture. But whenever it's them two together, it's like they're the only two people here. And she's trying to, it's it's hard because she's she's loving him and he's trying to be selfless and give his life to to the cause. And it's just, it's such an interesting dynamic. And even the scenes where she's in, where she's not speaking or doesn't have um, dialogue, like you just still always feel her presence. And mm-hmm. I thought like that was just an amazing performance by her. Like the three of them together, I, I feel like it's just so satisfying watching that um, from these actors. So yeah, I love it. Yeah, I also want to just point out that Jesse Plemons, who been, who's been cast in so much stuff lately, he seems to be like the go-to for a versatile amount of roles, but always a sort of slightly off character. Like always a, you know, something kind of slightly weird or creepy about him. He's a perfect dodgy character. He's perfectly dodgy all the time. And he can go really, really funny, like in Game Night and overly creepy, or he can go slightly weird like he does in Black Mirror or like he does in this. And I think he is just... He's an unsung hero, I think, in Hollywood right now. He's being cast by everybody and he's he always just knocks it out of the park. And I think he doesn't ever steal the show, which I like. He's, he's happy to play his part. Let's move on to Nomadland because this has got some very... Obviously, he's got an incredible central performance, but there's a very interesting supporting cast as well. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the whole thing with Chloe Zhao is, is her f- films before have been sort of semi-documentary fictionalized versions of basically taking taking real people and allowing them to present a fictionalized version of their own stories like in the writer and songs that my brothers taught me and here she kind of goes right well I'm gonna start with that basis and she she drew from many of the real life characters featured in Jessica Bruder's book No Bad Land uh Linda May Swanky Bob Wells these are all real people she said you know come be in my film I want you she was very what I really loved about it is she told these people like I want you to be able to tell your own story it's not necessarily just like play yourself and we've got to be authentic like we've got to make it as real as possible it's more like I I want you to present yourself as you want to be seen and tell your story as you want to tell it which I I find really beautiful and then to put in the middle of that you've just got Francis McDormand who just forever amazing (laughs) in all things wonderful and What's so interesting about her part is that, yes, it is a fictional character, but she's also kind of just playing Frances McDormand within that environment. The character, I mean, the character is named Fern, and the last name, we never hear the full last name, but it's Mick, Mick D something. Right. So it's pretty much Frances McDormand. as close as you can get. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting to see her sort of, 
go, right, let me place myself in this environment. Let me connect to these people as I, Francis McDormand, would connect to these people and sort of like melt into the environment. And that's what I find so beautiful about her performance is that like she has no sort of there's no vanity about it. I'm not just talking about the fact like, oh, you know, she's not wearing makeup, da, da, da. It's like she has no pretensions about what acting should be. Like you've got to do that. You've got to do the method thing. You've got to prepare and research. She's just like, I am going to live the spirit of this character and I'm just going to be fun and I'm going to exist as fun. That's it. Is it this like weird blur where you're not sure where Francis McDormand starts and Fern ends and with the supporting cast as well, I'm not sure what's scripted and what isn't. And like, I, I, the first time watching it, when I saw it at the London Film Festival, assumed maybe Swanky had died during the making of the film. And it doesn't bother me that she hadn't, obviously. Obviously, I'm so glad that she hasn't. But what I mean is that like, it didn't feel like I was being lied to. Like, it felt like the, the documentary elements and the fictional elements were so well blurred that it just helped me invest in it so much more. Yeah, and I, I think that's because she's not making this big thing of like authenticity yeah. i kind of hate when filmmakers do that like this is so ground this is so real man she's just like i want to capture the spirit the emotions mm. the the feeling of it like that's what's important to her and i think that is what makes her such a brilliant filmmaker we can get we can get onto that in a little bit mm-hmm. i mean we are picking three of the best most well-received movies that have come out in the last year so this is a very, very difficult thing to choose from. But I think I am going to give top marks to Judas and the Black Messiah. I found I found those um, performances the most compelling. And then I think I'm going to go to Nomadland and then Promising Young Woman, personally. It's the pink. It's the pink, man. I'm not into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at the end of that round, Judas and the Black Messiah has three points. Nomadland has two points. And Promising Young Woman has one point. Let's go on to memorable scene then and we'll go back to Promising Young Woman. What are some of the standout moments for you um, across the film and why? What is it about the way that those scenes play out that that stick in your mind? I'm going to pick out the first and the penultimate scene. Okay. Penultimate main scene of the film. So the first scene, we open in this sort of club, like a really dingy after work kind of lame club. And it opens with these quite close up shots, basically, of men dancing badly to the song Boys. And it's very, it's just reeks of after work drink vibes. Then there's the shot of Carrie's character, Cassie, just kind of slumped, drunk, in kind of, you know, very simple office attire, in this sort of, you know, completely spread out over on a sofa by herself, extreme, plain, extremely drunk. And it's such kind of a, a weirdly violent scene because she's framed both as a as an avenging angel in so many ways and that's how the movie was marketed and presented to us so we're already going in knowing like well she's not going to be the victim because she's the protagonist we've seen the trailer this is all going to be about her avenging something and but then it's we're looking at her through the eyes of Adam Brody's character of these leery lecherous men so you're seeing her in danger and it's really, it's it's really striking as a scene for an audience member because you're both afraid for her and kind of titillated because they're like, oh, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. How are you going to kill them? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you? What's going to be the the situation here? Because it's setting us up for danger, while also tapping into these very candy colored poppy disco aesthetics that make it so much more conflicting. 
And then my other absolutely top favorite scene, which again plays on this dichotomy between the look and feel of the movie, which is very pop, very millennial, extremely millennial pink, very candy colored, is when she is kind of going on her final mission and she's dressed her up in full Harley Quinn like, mode. Yeah, like in this um, weird nurse's disguise and she's posing as a stripper and she has this like candy colored wig and extreme makeup. And there's this orchestral version of Britney Spears' Toxic oh, playing, so which is so good. <laughs> and it's so scary. Like it pierces you to the heart because it's like this is not... Britney, this is some funeral music. This is some going into battle music. And it's also, again, the danger of her. You're kind of with her. You're just like, come on, like, absolutely blow some something up, Carrie. Do it for all of us. But you're also afraid for her. You're like, you're not, you're putting yourself in danger. You're so vulnerable as well. Both of those scenes are so provocative and so intense like i was like sick to my stomach watching those scenes but also wanting to see more of it mm -hmm. joe we're going to talk about judas and the black messiah now yeah my most memorable scenes um i'm gonna go with there's two that really stand out to me that um i wouldn't say i enjoyed but like they just burned into my head um one is when uh jesse plemons character is talking to his uh fbi boss um, about the whole situation, everything that's going on. And then, you know, his FBI boss just pretty much asks, like, we're, says that we're fighting, they're fighting for their future and for their way of life. And like, just, and it's even tough, to, it's even tough for me to like say, because I feel like it's so crazy. And I know how I felt watching it, but I know there's probably people out there who watching this and, feel the opposite to me. And I feel like that was the part of it that like, like it just burned that scene into how, my How did it make you feel? I mean, it made me feel like, like it just made me feel like, like terrible, like, like some people think having, don't know, a black person in their family or come home with their daughter or be, be involved in their life is the worst thing in the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that, this is an organization that governs a country. Do you know what I'm saying? Like just that, that to me is, is obviously it's crazy. Like it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's all of these things, but then like the, that I can deal with and understand through life anyway, but the, just the thought of the reverse of it, like that people in that scene, there could be, well, there are people in that scene potentially rooting for them in that moment. I felt like, that was just fucked, like, do you know what I'm saying? So the other one is the actual assassination where the police go in, you know, they raid the Black Panther Party uh, house, 99 bullets are shot. Only one came from a Black Panther's gun, which was a reaction to being shot um, by the security guard. And it's just like, I feel like both of these scenes are like, just so heavily connected to me that, there are people out there who believe they're just doing their job in police officers and whatever and have been told to do to do this. And the victims like like there's 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 no there's there's no fighting back. Do you know what I'm saying? Like this is I don't wanna say it's like a fight that can't be won, but there's so many things against against them in that scenario and there's not much they can do. Even with weapons, only one 
bullet was fired. Like, and it's just crazy to me. Like, it's such such a tough scenes to watch. But I also, like I said again, I appreciate Shaka King for putting this into the movie and visualizing it for those people who need this kind of like I just something to open their eyes. And I know it's not like a documentary, but so many of these things are taken from the actual events. And I feel like it's something that people should see. And if it's a movie that you're thinking about watching, like you should definitely watch it, you know? And I just think this whole, the whole movie stuck with me or still with me now. And I don't usually get like so emotionally tied up in, 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 in movies, but this one like really got to me differently. Um, and these, these scenes were some of the worst. I mean, I completely agree. And, it, and it's, especially feels very relevant because of the year. And it was accidentally relevant. The fact that it, all the things that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement last year synced up with the release of this, just to be like, just to, just to drive the point home. It's tough because like, yeah, there's the Black Lives Matter movement and it's very relevant to everyone today. But regardless of whether that movement happened last year or yeah. not, these, these events are going on. Do you know what I'm saying? And I feel like people should just educate themselves on on the situation and and do what they can because doing nothing is supporting is supporting it. One small thing I wanted to add is about Judas and the Black Messiah. What I love so much about Shaka King's filmmaking is like the whole film kind of comes in the mold of a traditional biopic. Like it works through certain structures. You're like, okay, I recognize this film. But it's really still embracing, like Fred Hampton had very radical, like community-based politics, and he was so much about, you know, feeding kids, like spreading education. Like he, he his politics were there was there was so much to them that I think the film couldn't necessarily all put into sort of one storyline. But I, I loved that it created a starting point. Like, as you said, it, it's it's such a powerful educational tool to be like, watch this movie and then go read about his life. Because what you see in the film is only the start of, of what he did. And he, he did so much profound and important work for his community that, like, I that's where I really go, oh, wow, like, the power of film. <laughs> like, it really can educate people and open doors and show people like what things can be if i can echo both joe and clarice one of the amazing things about judas and the black messiah is how it shows how history is rewritten for political purposes and how you know joe mentioned the 99 um how many of our bullets was it 99? 99 bullets 99 bullets and only one of them fired by a member of the black panther community like the way that then those facts are then rewritten and presented yeah, and that's, going that, down in history, that's how then things get erased and remembered. And it's films like this, not to be all like the power of cinema, but these stories and the way that they're told matter because showing both Chairman Fred Hampton's work and his politics and not just his life and, and all of that, but the way that then that narrative was shifted you know, like, oh, he's going to jail. And then we immediately see, oh, we just needed, they just needed to put him in jail for whatever reason. So they make up a reason. And mm-hmm. it's the the showing, Chaka King showing the behind the scenes, the conniving, the politicking that goes on behind closed doors. And then the things that are presented to the public. 
and the dissonance between them is one I think one of the biggest achievements of Judas and the Black Messiah. All right, let's move on to Nomadland. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to to pick out a memorable scene because Nomadland is really about moments mm-hmm. rather than scenes. And what really stands out to me is certain shots, certain like very small lines of dialogue, like a shared look between Fern and, and another member of the Nomad community. I mean, my favorite shot is kind of the one that you see a lot. It's her walking along the plains to, to her um, trailer, to her caravan, and you see the sunset and it's all these pinks and purples and she's holding the lantern as she glows up and it's it's kind of ethereal and it's mysterious. And one of the reasons that I, I think, really like emotionally connected to this film is that um, I grew up in Arizona. And so that image, that moment, those colors, that dusk is so familiar to me. And it's not necessarily in a nostalgic way because... I think what's very important about Nomadland is that she doesn't romanticize it. I think she finds she finds beauty within it without simplifying their lives, without simplifying the fact that these people are suffering. Like <laughs> these people are, you know, it, it really breaks my heart to th- to think that characters like Fern, there are so many people in America right now who are just one bad day away from living Fern's life. And yes, she she finds so much pride in it because like you do, you make the best of it. But like this isn't the life that she imagined for herself. She wanted to be with her husband in gypsum. She wanted to to be in that community. She has so many beautiful memories of of living there and and her home and her family and everything. It's not about romanticizing it. It's not about like turning these people into like little oh look it's so cute like the Mm -hmm. van life hashtag van life it's about like human to me it's about kind of like human resilience yeah that the fact that she she can make this life for herself and she can reconnect with nature i love love the scene where she's bathing in the river naked and she's so serene and she finds this incredible moment of peace and all of this like i it is really a testament to humanity to me. And I think that's what really moves me about Nomadland. And and I think well, I, there's a really interesting line where she goes to visit her sister and her sister remarks that, oh, you're kind of, you're kind of like the American pioneers, right? Because you're nomads, you're traveling across America. And to me, she's like, she's totally wrong <laughs> because the point is that, you know, the pioneers, they they were going to find America. They were traveling to establish America to, to discover it. And I feel like these characters are very much trying to escape it. Like the whole film is about America has failed these people. Yeah, that's why it's, it's really hard to pick just like, oh, this is the memorable scene because it's something that builds up slowly with like every little interaction. And like, I love when she's working at the Badlands Park and she's she's joking around with the other woman going, yeah, we're the Badlands bitches. And it's just such a like sweet... Just like a random little bit when they've got cucumbers on their yeah, eyes and they're just having the a little face, face mask. Masks. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't seem like, I know compared to these other two movies, it doesn't really seem like anything. But when it's <laughs> but, a part of a whole... Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's about building those moments up and up and up. And by the end of it, you just get such a sense of, of who she is, what she wants, what she's grieving, what she's running away from. And and I think that it's the kind of movie that really hits you when the credits run, when you're like, 
oh, okay, I, I understand what I've just experienced now. That docudrama line that Chloe Zhao walks between in her cinema is kind of being, is operating at the top of her game in Nomadland, where all of that weaves in and you're just left with a mood, a feeling, an embrace of a lifestyle. There is no wallowing in drama or wallowing in pain. It's kind of really centered on very human moments, very small moments that she considers cinematic. But she's just saying, look, without going all macro, without going all hypercritical about the capitalist structures that have led everyone into this situation, Let's just focus on the human moments. And I think, like, as she's talked about this, like, that's that's the stepping stone. Like, you can't really start to, to understand the system and criticize the system before you you understand the, the people it impacts. Okay, I'm going to try and give out points now as fairly as I can. Because, again, I think all of these are incredible in their own way. And I think the way you've argued them is incredible. Anna, I'm going to give you full marks for Promising Young Woman. And these scenes, yes, may not have worked for me specifically and my bias and my taste, but certainly have stuck with me. And they, they all feel like they're standout scenes. And they do feel like they do feel like scenes in, in, that, in that film. And then I'm going to give two points to Judas and the Black Messiah. Again, for the, how, how you put it forward as well. And, and I think a different perspective to exactly, you know, I look like this. So I don't like feel the same way as personally as obviously you do. And I think that's important. And then Nomadland, one point only because it's the last one. <laughs> but it's incredible, obviously. This is a, a roundabout memorable scenes. And you're right. It feels like a collection of moments rather than individual set pieces. If we were doing memorable shots, sure. then I would have won. I but I so. understand. Yeah. But at the end of that round... Judas and the Black Messiahs currently have five points. Promising Woman has four points. And Nomadland has three points. And now it takes us on to the next round, which is cultural impact. And I think we'll go to Judas and the Black Messiah first. Um, what do you think is the cultural impact of Judas and the Black Messiah? What do you think it's saying about our culture? What do you think it will do for the future of, of cinema and whatever else? I mean, it's tough, it's tough to say with a movie that's just come out. But yeah. I feel like... Um, Hopefully Shaka King goes on to make a lot more movies. I think the kind of vision he's got um, needs to be, I, I mean, me personally, I would love to just see more of what he can do and and the, the kind of performances he can pull out of other great actors. Um, I feel like the story needs to be seen by lots of people. And one thing I do like about this is that it's taken from the perspective of William O'Neill. Um, and I think making him the protagonist of the movie is like such a weird thing to do when mm. you have Frank Hammond, uh, Hampton, Fred Hampton, sorry, Fred Hampton in it as well, especially played by um, Daniel Kaluuya. So I just want to see what, what everyone goes on to do. You know, uh, Dominique Fishback, I, I want to see what she does next. I'm just really excited for everyone in the project to do something else and see where they go with it. But it's it's hard to say about like what it's going to do for cinema culturally mm -hmm. um, ahead of time. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be known now as the one that got Daniel Kaluuya at the Oscar, which is nice. So he's also always going to be known as Academy Award winning Daniel Kaluuya, which is good. But I agree. I, I'm so excited to see creatively where everyone goes next. In fact, all of these movies have been award hitters in one way or another. 
like Emerald Fennell now is obviously going on to do a DC project of some sort, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Um, and you know, I'm as as is Chloe Zhao as well. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of loving the fact that we're now there's a long-standing tradition of male indie directors being plucked from their first indie success and going off to do a really big budget movie, whether that's Marvel or DC or anything else. And I'm glad that also female indie directors are getting that chance and their perspectives are very very different and they have very distinct cinematic voices i think on promising young women obviously emerald's also kind of you know not as historic a win as um as chloe Zhao for best director but also, it's it's important to know that she picked up the best original screenplay award at the at the Oscars, and I think it's important for for a couple of reasons. Not just because she's a she's a woman. Um, the last time a woman picked up a best original screenplay award, I think, was Diablo Cody for Juno, and but I think it's because of the genre of the film because this is, I think, it's sort of walks the fine line between horror and thriller but i think it's interesting that a film that's so dark and so controversial and so steeped in tropes and themes that are very much of the horror territory picking up an award well picking up a lot of awards but namely oscars and baftas and i think to be honest jordan peele has a lot to thank for that because he picked up the best original screenplay for get out a few years back and that's also historic for a number of reasons but i think kind of the the traditional allergy that awards bodies have towards horror and thrillers in general is another hurdle to get over so i'm excited for emerald playing around in the genre space even more i do find it fascinating though that as much as i love the movie it's also been one of the ones where i've so enjoyed the conversation around it Mm -hmm. where i've read a lot of takedowns and seen a lot of video essays that kind of go against the movie and have extremely valid and very very fair points that are criticisms of the film and one of the things that i find it really rarely happens that a film can be so extremely divisive Yet, you welcome the conversation and the division around it. And you feel, yes, I want to hear everyone's point of view on it. It's so fascinating that it triggers people in so many distinct ways. And people feel compelled to talk about it. The fact that a movie like this does not leave anyone indifferent is such a testament to its impact. Do you think that this is going to open the doors now for not similar exactly in terms of like what it's discussing in the film like thematically but in terms of potentially more um controversial ideas in terms of like how it's going to be presented in a movie do you know what i mean like topics that are going to be undertaken in a in a subversive way do you think that's sort of going to open the doors now because it's been so successful i think one of the things it's going to do is probably something that didn't quite happen um that sofia coppola was also kind of always accused about where kind of she her films look too feminine or too girly but i think the way that this promising young woman has embraced the the millennial aesthetic Mm -hmm. and the millennial music i think that's why like the the use of britney spears as toxic has been has gone down so well is because all of our people our age have just gone oh my god (laughs) yeah and it's kind of you know really embracing the culture and i think emerald fennell has been unapologetic about kind of using a very feminine very kind of generationally specific aesthetic as well and i think one of the things that we'll see is perhaps less of um 
in terms of financing and getting films produced, I think there's going to be less of an allergy to a certain type of aesthetic, especially mm-hmm. within genre films. Clarice. Chloe Zhao? It won Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best picture. The the people said so. The people who vote for the Oscars said it was the best And they're one. always right. And Frances McDormand wooed on stage. So. She did. We're talking about cultural impact. <laughs> did anyone in your movies woo? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, also, I think I, I just can't. This is what made me so mad about the Oscars. Chloe Zhao winning Best Director is like historic on a level my brain can't process. She's the second woman ever mm-hmm. to win Best Director. The first woman of color. She's also the most honored filmmaker of one a single award season she's won the most awards period partially because she she was also the the editor and the you know she took on so many that's what i I can't believe i mentioned that that was what blew my mind with this as well is that she's clear it's clearly hers yeah in every single sense like she was there for Every she wasn't sat in a, in an edit studio behind an editor. She did it piece by piece herself. Well, I love that she's only on her third movie, and we can already be like, "Yep, yeah, that's a Chloe Zhao movie." Like I recognize it. Even the few shots that we've seen from Eternals, Eternals. like that's Chloe Zhao. You're like, oh, uh, yep. <laughs> oh, look, it's not on a green screen. That's yeah. Chloe Zhao. <laughs> and I think what's really impressive about her, what I really admired, is her voice is so definitive. Her voice is so unique and so its own that. I love that we're not just sitting here being like, oh, she's the next Malik. Because she's not. She's the next Chloe Zhao. Mm-hmm. Like, she's that iconic. <laughs> and yeah, Eternals, like, this is this is the year of Chloe Zhao. She's coming and that movie looks bomb. It looks amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing as well that she specifically did say, can I do this on location, please? And Kevin Feige, his mind was blown. He was like, oh my God. Not CGI exists. We can use locations. (laughs) You can go outside. (laughs) Well, you can't really anymore. (laughs) Usually, we just bring like a bit of it in here and do the rest later. (laughs) No Man Land is not only historic. I think already because of that best director win is going to go down in history. That even that best picture win. I mean, it's not the the normal thing that usually picks up best picture. It's as we said, you know, it's very muted. It's it's semi documentary. Yeah, it's not Mank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think combined with this and Moonlight and a few other recent best picture winners, it's like oh, we're really like turning a corner now where the Oscars are actually giving best picture yeah. to the best picture. Two years in a row. This is weird and exciting but Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) And I think you've argued that really well. I'm going to give Nomadland three points for that because I think Chloe Zhao is going to storm it. I think she's going to become our next great director. And I'm so hopeful that Eternals is going to be like such a different way of looking at a Marvel superhero movie. Outside. already already (laughs) we've done it and then i'm gonna give two points to promising young woman because i think you're right i think it's aesthetically gonna open some doors that it was very unashamed of i think you're right that there's something about its aesthetic that is so bold and different and then uh, a singular point for the judas and the black messiah only simply because it was the final one rather than it actually like i don't know i I just, just it's the last one that i was giving points to we're fine we're good jack don't worry (laughs) 
Okay, so before we go into the IMDb rating round, everybody is currently neck and neck. Everybody has six points each. Because <laughs> I manufactured this. I did this on purpose. <laughs> okay, so the final one is the IMDb rating round where I have no control. So what do people think top to bottom it's going to be? What's going to be at the top? What's going to be at the bottom? Nomad's, Nomadland's going to be first. You think Nomadland's yeah. at top? Nomadland. Yeah. What do you think is at the bottom? I think Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm going to have to agree. Because people are racist. Um, yes. Yeah, because yeah. people are horrible. <laughs> All right, let's find out. If we think that Nomadland's the one to beat, Alexa, tell me the IMDb rating for Nomadland. Nomadland has an IMDb rating of 7.4 out of 10. That's really low. Yeah, that's pretty low. Yeah. What yeah, the hell? That's lower than I expected it to be. Alexa. Tell me the IMDb rating for Promising Young Woman. The movie Promising Young Woman has an IMDb rating of 7.5 out of 10. Wow. 7.5. By a hair. <laughs> Can so Judas tense. and the Black Messiah beat 7.5? I don't know. That, this is giving me more anxiety towards the situation. I feel like I'm coming in at like a six now. Alexa. Tell me the IMDb rating for Judas and the Black Messiah. The movie Judas and the Black Messiah has an IMDb rating of 7.5 out of 10. So? Not everyone's racist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've learned here today. Okay, so because Promising Young Woman and Judas and the Black Messiah are joint first, I'm going to give Clarice and Nomadland two points instead of one. That doesn't seem fair just to give you one point. So it's two points and three points each, which means controversially that Nomadland has eight points but currently Judas and the Black Messiah and Promising Young Woman both have nine points each so that brings us to the tiebreaker so you're both going to have 30 seconds on the clock to argue your point to me Mr. Bias <laughs> who didn't like Promising Young Woman <laughs> <laughs> you're already setting me up to fail as to why <laughs> are you also going to give me 15 seconds instead of 30 <laughs> as to why I should pick your film as the best film of the year um, and I'll, I'll have Clarice help me if, if, I, if, if she would like to sure I mean I don't know why Nomadland isn't in the conversation I know. anymore but oh, I didn't mean gonna... to do that Anna you're going to go first Okay. 30 seconds on the clock you ready Yes. Alexa, set a timer for 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Starting now. Okay. Promising Woman's best film of this, of 2021, because it succeeds on every single level. It's the most talked about film of the year. It has an absolutely stunning cast that both subverts and leans into our expectation. It walks a fine line, which is very difficult to walk between comedy, thriller, and horror. It has an absolutely incredibly uh, telling aesthetic, both musically and visually. It is one of the most, if not the most, millennial films of its time. Nice summary. Well done. Okay, Joe, are you ready? Yes. Alexa, set a timer for 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Starting now. I think Shaki King is an amazing director and he does uh, an amazing thing with this movie. Daniel Kaluuya, Dominic 
uh, Fishback and Lakeith Statham, I think, are the best cast of any movie that we've spoken about today. If you mix in the cinematography and the editing, it just captures something that is so large, but also keeps it very intimate as well. I feel like this whole movie is so important and so relevant to today that it should be the best picture of the year. Um, the Fred Hampton story needs to be told. Clarice, what are we thinking? You two, don't listen. It's hard because, like, on arguments basis, I can't choose because, like, they're very different films. Yeah, this is it. And both of you argued it so, so well. and For and completely made... different reasons. Yeah, both of those films sound absolutely vital. So I don't, but uh, I have a slight preference for one, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm, who am I? I'm just a worm, as that <laughs> character in, in Labyrinth once said. I think that because Nomadland won Best Picture and Best Film across the board. And it just like was the it best. It just was, you know, I Since think we're that all agreed here, that it was the best movie, it should not win. I'm happy for the first time just, on this, for, for us to just agree on the draw. This, this is a historic moment as well. This is a historic yes. chaotic. moment. <laughs> this is as chaotic as the end of the Oscars. <laughs> By the power of editing, I hand you the Screen Test Award. Thank you so much. And now, Joe, through the power of editing, I hand you the Screen Test Award. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> You're welcome. Can I please? <laughs> <laughs> please? Right. Both of you can make a speech at the same time and go. Shaka King, we did it. That's I'm good. Power to the people. Thank you. Thank you to Britney Spears. Well, yeah, finally someone said it. So that means for the first time in our history, there's two winners. Nomadland won all the Oscars and Judas and the Black Messiah and Promising Young Woman won here. So do you agree with the result? Let us know in the comments. And if you're searching for some of the best movies of the year so far, then look no further than Prime Video because they have some standouts. For whatever mood that you're in, such as the Oscar-nominated film One Night in Miami, crime thriller I Care A Lot, which I loved, and the long-awaited Eddie Murphy sequel Coming to America. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us on this episode. Pleasure. And I hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. And, well, that's it. Bye-bye. (laughs) hello thank you so much for listening to the end this is the final episode of what we're calling series one of the screen test we hope you've had as much fun listening to this podcast as we've had making it oh what a lovely sweet sentiment i do mean it though even though that sounds a little bit sarcastic i genuinely do mean it i love making this show and hopefully we'll be back later in the year fingers crossed for some brand new episodes to decide which movies are the best of all time according to my bias opinion (laughs) but just to give you one more fix of the screen test we'll be back next week for a special bonus episode to discuss which movies we're all most looking forward to for the rest of 2021 let us know which episodes you'd like to see in the future by tweeting us at prime video uk we're all on twitter me joe and clarice get in touch let us know what you'd like to see and hopefully we'll be back soon come on fingers crossed fingers 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 (laughs) little Paddington 2 reference there just to close out the show that's how we're going out and if that is how we're going out we're going out on a high (laughs) bye bye